Hi, thanks for joining our podcast at Renew Church OC, a church for imperfect people only. We have a special announcement. A small crew from our church and I co-authored a children's book series and journals that help people find their calling with profits going to the foster community. Our website just launched and we would love for you to take a look and do some Christmas shopping. I dropped our link and a special promo code for our listeners in the description section. This month, all eyes were on the election as people were hanging their hopes and nightmares on Trump or Biden. And 2020 has been defined by these waves of fears pulling at our attention, whether it's the pandemic, racial injustice, or Kobe dying. Yeah, I'm still hung up on that. Our sermon series, Refocus, is about putting our eyes back on Jesus instead of being fixated on these external events. I hope that as you focus on Jesus and the gospel again, you'll see the world through his eyes. Enjoy the sermon. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Man, that was an intense question. What flavor ice cream would you vote for? No, I'm just kidding. I think all of us feel the weight of this election. And whether you are kind of fighting amongst your small group because of this question, or whether you felt divided with your family, with your parents, with your sister, with your cousins, there's just been this massive, um, violent infighting in America in ways that I've never seen. I've never seen people so passionate so entrenched in their position, so unopened to dialogue, and so uh, afraid of the other candidate winning. I think it's taken our attention and my attention for the last three months. And it's hard to envision us taking our eyes off of the news screens, the polls, the uh, NPR podcast over the next three days. I mean, this election is all-consuming. And so many people in our country and so many of us have really our hopes and and our dreams and our future staked on one candidate and some of our worst fears placed on another. I know even in my own family, we're having these discussions and, and kind of fights about which candidate we think is best. You know, over this next sermon series, Refocus, I'm hoping that We don't ignore politics because it's important, but we also don't have that as our primary focus, that Jesus would come back into view and he would be ultimately what we put our hope in. He's the great king. He's where our first citizenship resides. We're about his kingdom first. And as I think about the ways Christians have talked about politics, have really disowned each other, has used religion as a tool to fortify in their position. I just think about how it's really grieved uh, Jesus and has made us look like we care more about our political party than about our church family. I hope that this sermon series of refocusing will take our eyes off of a lot of the distractions that have happened this year and have consumed us and allow us to place our eyes again on Jesus and have him consume our vision. Well, when we think about the political divide and fractures 
in our society, it wasn't so different in Jesus' time. There were some really deep fractures in the Jewish community. The Sadducees and Pharisees were at odds. Even though they were both Jesus' enemies, they were actually often uh, facing off against each other. The Sadducees had control over the temple. The line of priests were under them. They, they were able to um, leverage the sacrificial system of the Jewish community to their advantage, but they were known for corruption. They weren't following the laws that they were ascribing to the people. They were trying to um, steal money. That's why Jesus was throwing around tables at the temple courts. And because of their corruption, this grassroots movement of Pharisees started coming up. And the community really respected the Pharisees because of their juxtaposition to the Sadducees. They were people who loved and followed the letter of the law. They were about perfection. And every Jewish law that they had from the Torah, they would do everything they could to uh, complete it in their own life. And so they had this natural rub against the Pharisees. There were also these political divisions and fractions in the Jewish community as well. There were the Herodians who uh, were political and really worked with the Roman Empire um, and wanted to align themselves with Herod. Whereas the Zealots were, were Jews who hated the Roman Empire, who were willing to bear arms, and who had a lot of the populace um, backing to try to overthrow Rome. And so they would um, do like terrorist attacks in the Roman Empire's eyes in order to overthrow them. So this is the political atmosphere Jesus is walking into. But greater than the Sadducees and Pharisees, Herodians and Zealots, was kind of this one hope and, and pinnacle of influence. And that was the Messiah. The Messiah was someone that the Jewish community saw almost as a superhero, like their personal superhero, like Captain America, if Captain America was real, right? This Messiah was to liberate the Jews and to rule and unify them, to establish this everlasting Davidic kingdom. And during this time especially, there were many people coming out to claim that they were the Messiah, about 120 people. I mean, can you imagine the Democratic uh, Convention, right, with 120 Democratic presidential nominees all vying for people's attention, making their pitches, trying to gather for rallies? In about 70 years, 120 people claimed to be the Messiah, trying to rally support and unify the Jews. Josephus, the historian, said that there were so many messiahs, it was like a plague of locusts in the wilderness. And Jesus was thrusted into that messianic conversation. It would be like people having lawn signs that said, Jesus of Nazareth, 0020, right? And as Jesus came onto the scene, his disciples his followers, and his enemies saw him from a political lens. When he was doing miracles, they couldn't help but ask, how could we weaponize these miracles, 
right? When it comes to feeding the 5,000, I mean, we wouldn't have to have a supply line. We wouldn't have to lug um, food around when we went to war with the Romans. Jesus can just multiply food out of a few loaves and a few fish. But better than that is being able to raise the dead and heal people who were paralyzed. Going against the largest army on the face of the earth, it's like a bug going against a boot, right? It's like Taiwan or Hong Kong trying to take over China militarily. It's, it's pretty much impossible. Unless you have a Messiah with superpowers, then you can re-raise your army from the dead. Or if someone's injured, you just heal them right away. When Jesus was rejected from a town, his disciples were asking if he can send fire from heaven, right? They wanted to know if he can turn his powers against his enemy. I mean, Elijah did it when King, when the king was sending um, military people to take him in. He would swallow platoons of, of soldiers with fire from heaven. And they're like, maybe Jesus can do that as well. They were also seeing him as a military leader, similar to George Washington, bucking, you know, the Roman Empire, but also then taking um, political position and being the ruler, the king, the president, if you will, of the Jews. And in that discussion, in this political discussion, James and John is sending their mom to ask uh, Jesus for like vice presidency and, you know, chief of staff. Um, they're having dis discussions among themselves about who will be the greatest in this new country, in this new kingdom that Jesus would reign and rule over. Jesus' enemies also believed that he was a political threat. They also had that lens. Even as a baby, King Herod uh, the Great wanted to kill Jesus, right? The wise men showed up. Um, talking about a prophecy of a, of a king being born. And right away, his antennas went up. He was deathly afraid and paranoid uh, about his power and wanted to retain it at all costs. And, and so he was trying to gun after Jesus, asking the wise men to come back and report Jesus' location to them. And when they couldn't find him, and when the wise men kind of like, you know, canceled Herod because of a dream— Herod sent a whole army to kill babies uh, to and under. I mean, what a horrific event. The Bible actually describes a wailing uh, that night because of that kind of death. And then out of that came this uh, saying that it's better to be Herod's pigs than his son, right? Because he had killed so many people around him because of perceived threats. They were saying, man, like uh, animals do a better job surviving than his own children. Pontius Pilate, at the end of Jesus' life, also kills him because he sees Jesus as his political enemy. And especially the Jews who leveraged uh, that fear, saying, if you let this man go, Jesus go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. And it's because of this political threat that Pontius Pilate crucifies Jesus. All this to say that Jesus' followers and enemies saw him from a lens of political power. But Jesus was not after political power. You know, one of my favorite 
segments of scripture, I think one of the most profound segments in terms of leadership and comparing agenda is Jesus versus Jesus. Pilate was um, holding trial and, and wanting to liberate Jesus' Nazareth. And so he goes up to the Jews and in this tradition, they get to liberate one of their prisoners, one of the Jewish prisoners. So he offers Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas was a zealot. He rebelled against the Roman Empire. He raised a sword against them, and he had a lot of people who believed in that kind of violence against Rome for liberation. And then there was Jesus, who apparently didn't speak even to defend himself, who carried this humility with him, who never... um, who never raised a sword or violence against Rome. And the Jewish people put their hope in Jesus Barabbas. The Jewish people put their hope in the sword, in violence, in overpowering the Roman Empire versus Jesus who was a suffering servant, who washed feet with a towel instead of picked up a sword to fight a legion of soldiers. And I think there was this growing disappointment through his trial and arrest, through his flogging, that he wasn't going to exercise his power to take over the way that they had expected. He was humble. You know, when I think about the Jesus that we're emulating as a church, as Christians, is it Jesus of Nazareth who's humble? who loves others, who is about service? Or are we more like Jesus Barabbas in this political climate? Wailing a sword, yelling loudly, you know, uh, causing division, wanting to overtake and overpower. So if Jesus wasn't after um, a political position, leveraging his influence and popularity. If Jesus wasn't after overthrowing the Roman Empire with uh, an army, what was he after? I believe Jesus was a king who wasn't conquering or capturing cities or land or armies, but he was a king who wanted to capture hearts. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, uh, the prophet says, I will give them an undivided heart, And put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Jesus was a a king who wanted to capture hearts. And that's really one of the major differences between the Old Testament and New Testament as well. You see, the Old Testament had a perfect law, the Torah. It taught them how to govern um, their society, uh, Israel. It taught them how to live ethically as individuals, but it it didn't give them a heart. That's why Ezekiel talks about their heart being a heart of of stone. Their heart was still inclined to themselves and to sin. I think about the law as like creating an external boundary around us, helping us understand where we need to reside to thrive and to have a healthy society— And what is off-limits that hurts ourselves and the people around us, right? I I think of it kind of like Levi. We put him in this playpen. 
where it has like his favorite toys, pillows, things that are squishy, things that he can't swallow and die on. And, um, and we kind of gate him in. It kind of looks like a cage. And sometimes he treats it like he's in prison. He'll hang off of it and cry um, to be released. But what happens when we release him, right? If we put him in the middle of the living room, he loves playing with electric outlets. He goes straight to the toilet and splashes around in that water, right? Or he walks over to the kitchen and starts turning the knobs on the stove, potentially gassing us to death. And so when he's in the playpen, he's safe. When he's out of the playpen, he, go, he still goes to t- danger. His heart doesn't change. He didn't mature. He didn't uh, have a greater sense of danger. But what we're really hoping for is for Levi to turn into Liam. Liam's four years old now. He doesn't play in toilet water. He doesn't try to gas us with the stove or electrocute himself. His heart has changed. He's matured. He doesn't want to do evil anymore. And that's really the new new covenant. That's what Jesus is going for. He's going for a heart change. That we would reorient our heart towards him. You know, when I think about one of the greatest checks of whether we are Christian and have really received Christ in our hearts, it's, it's our, the orientation of our souls. It's our fundamental desire shifting away from ourselves, away from what makes us comfortable, what we want, what will satisfy our flesh, into what God wants orienting our greatest desires on him and saying, God, what what do you want out of my life? What is your purpose? And turning that compass towards the Lord. You know, I think a way to know whether maybe we're cultural or, if you will, fake Christian is to say, is is to think, man, I'm Christian, but it's really a tool, right? I'm Christian, but I'm really using my faith, using Jesus to get what I want. The compass of my heart is still turned to self. That's a great way to check. Jesus gives us a new heart. And out of that new heart, we actually want to obey the law. But it's not these external boundaries anymore. It's like Liam, right? He could be put in a room of outlets and not touch any. He could be put in a room of toilets and he doesn't want to play in it. So our hearts allow us to fulfill the law, not only in terms of not violating it, but going beyond the law in terms of doing good, right? The law, the legal system, politics, it can only teach us, and the Torah, it primarily teaches what not to do. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't give false testimony. Don't murder. But when our heart changes, It's not just about what we don't do. It's about the good that we do. Instead of not murdering, our heart change says, how do we love our enemies? Instead of lying um, and just keeping this law, this boundary of not lying, a heart change says, how do we become truth tellers filled with grace? Instead of not stealing, right? Just keeping that boundary. Uh, Our heart change is saying, how do we be generous? How do we care for widows and orphans? How do we give generously to uh, the people around us? 
You know, when I think about Jesus, he saw the limitations of political power and the law. He saw even the limitations of, of power to conquer without heart change. And so instead, he dies on the cross to demonstrate his love to us, to forgive us of our sin, and to give us a new heart. And Christians are simply people who recognize that Jesus has always been king and see it. Christians are people who recognize they need forgiveness and receive it from the cross and desires a new heart and a new spirit. Now, let me ask you this. All the weight, pressure, anxiety we've put on politics, on changing and reformatting the Supreme Court, whether it's packing it or getting Amy there as quickly as possible, is it about heart change? Or is the Christian evangelical church really just focused on the law? Our hope, is our hope on the gospel that changes hearts? Or is our hope on politics that simply changes the laws, move the boundaries a little bit? Because even if you have a whole separate category in the legal system for hate crimes, it doesn't make someone who's racist love a person of another color or ethnicity. Right? Heart change does that. Even if you uh, loosen and, and kind of uh, reform the police uh, system right, and give them more accountability, does that change their hearts? Even if you reform the way we do immigration, does that allow people to love their neighbors and welcome them in? Even if you move the abortion law to the left or to the right, does that really care? Does that really create homes that welcome orphans and foster and give mothers an opportunity to continue their education and, and have their children and, and it to be a, a, a vibrant life? You see, the, the depths of our societal problems can't be solved by the law because it's a heart issue. As Christians, we need to use our platforms, our voices, and stake our hope, not on Biden or on Trump, not on the Republicans or the Democrats, not on the Supreme Court, but on the gospel. And say that it's through Jesus who loves us and who reorients our soul towards him and towards others that I am am changed and that every individual is changed. And in that most fundamental change, we have people who truly love their neighbors, regardless of skin color or, or social economics. We have people who truly love um, immigrants who are struggling for a new life in the U.S. We have people who stop committing crimes and burning down buildings and shooting each other. Right? Gun laws doesn't stop people necessarily from killing people. It, it might stop them from killing people more effectively or some mass shootings, but their hearts are still evil. We need Jesus to change hearts. And as a church, that is our first and greatest purpose. It's not legal reform. 
it's not political reform. It's a new soul. It's the gospel. And it's Jesus that we need to promote greater than any other politician or party. Because he's the one, when he came down to earth, who said, I'm not going to change the law. I'm not changing the, the system of government. I'm not taking over this place with the army. I'm going after individuals. And through humility, through love, through forgiveness. So how, what about us? Are we chasing after the dream of Jesus Barabbas for political reform? Are we following Jesus of Nazareth for hearts? Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you place our eyes, our hope, our dreams for this country back on the gospel. There's a hundred other solutions, propositions, um, policies that are good, that can be good for this country, but it's just setting up maybe a better boundary. You, Jesus, you go way beyond that. You transform our souls. You give us, instead of a heart of stone, a heart of flesh. You give us the Holy Spirit to reside in us, to be a second voice, to be a tutor, to empower us to do good things. Our job isn't just to do less evil, it's to do good. And you give us that power to do it. Father, as a church, um, yeah, we, we desire um, our city's laws to reflect you. But more so, let us put our greatest effort, our greatest voice, our greatest energy into the individuals who need a savior, who want to recognize you as king. Um, help us to be a church, regardless of political climate and our country's laws, follows your laws of loving our enemy, of forgiving people, of welcoming the orphan, the widow. Um, help us to be your kingdom on earth here. Thank you that your kingdom and you as king has existed in communist China, in North Korea, in Vietnam, in Russia. Your kingdom is invisible and expansive. Your laws of loving others have reigned in the hearts of, of more countrymen, more citizens than er, any physical country has. And we are loyal to you first. Um, you are our king. We put our hope in you, Father. Regardless of political system, your church has survived and thrived in every climate. Your kingdom only knows how to advance. So, Father, we pray for your peace and sovereignty over your church in America during this next week, during the next three days, that we put our eyes, our ears on you, that we would put our hope on you, Jesus. Amen.